You know, the, uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish people had this belief um, in repetition. So they, as opposed to a lot of religions that believed that repetition meant you would finally be heard by your God, we'll sort of see that in Elijah next week, but the Jewish people had this idea that repetition brought um, savoring, that it brought nuance, that it brought renewed focus. It's why a lot of times in the Psalms you see them repeated. It's, it's why that a lot of times in uh, like Hebrew prayers and stuff and like spoken from rabbis, oftentimes they would suggest that people um, say certain prayers over and over again so that they would find nuance in them and that they would have a deeper understanding to them. And I was thinking as Calvin was singing that, um, that first song is like a prayer. Right, set a fire in my soul that I can't contain, that I can't control. And one of the things Calvin and I had been talking about was that our youth group, we wanted to instill in them a, a greater love for the Lord and a desire for him. And one of the things we talked about was just singing these small choruses that were able to be remembered easily, able to be focused on, able to sort of talk about that desire. Um, and so that's sort of the whole point of that song. But what I love is that second part. There's no place I'd rather be than here in your love. Um, as we were singing it, we were repeating it. You know, the first time that you think about it, you think about God's presence. You think about um, what it means for us to be in God's love, right? Found in him, having his grace. But like, as I was thinking about it too, is like, and as it's being repeated, and I'm thinking of all these nuances, um, there's no place I would rather be also means like in the presence of his church, right? Um, Christ loved his church. The church was his love. And to be in the presence of his love also means to be in the presence of the church. And I was just thinking like, man, that's sort of true. Like I've had a really rough day, guys. Like a pretty rough day. I'd say top 10 worse. And there's still no place I'd rather be than right here with you guys. Um, so I love you guys. I just want to say that. I'm going to get a little emotional tonight. I know I will. But um, all that to say, like, man, worship is so cool like that, right? Is that, like, the author wrote something, and there are other intentions that can be true in that song, too. And oftentimes when you sing things like that, those new meanings come out. I love that. I love that God does that with um, his church and with his word. Um, so we're going to see a lot of meaning like that in a lot of different things. Let me get set up here. First um, Kings 17. That's where we are. No big surprise at this point, right? We're still diving into 1 Kings 17 and where Elijah is. We've been talking about Elijah for quite a while now. We're going to continue talking about Elijah. Um, but tonight, we're talking about God's glory. And that's the running theme in Elijah's life. And so far, we've seen a lot of God's provision. We've spent several weeks talking about God's provision in Elijah's life, right? Provision in Elijah. But now we're going to start seeing God's glory through Elijah. God's glory through the life of Elijah. Namely, uh, we're going to see the things that God does through Elijah that continue to bring glory to God himself. And the things that set God apart from the other gods that people believed in. We get more into it, especially next week. We're going to start in the contest of the gods. But we've already talked about this god, Baal, that was being worshipped. And we're going to start seeing the vast difference between a fake pagan god and the one true living God, and things that God does bring glory to himself. Um, and, and here's what we're in today. We're in 
the story of Elijah and the widow's son. So you guys probably remember last week, uh, the widow that we sort of talked about. Elijah found her, and he asked her for the last bit of her bread. Right? She had this plan with the bread that she was going to take it, she was going to make it, because it was just the ingredients, and she was going to eat it with her son, and then they were just going to prepare to starve to death, because it was the last bit of food that they had. And Elijah ran into her as she was out collecting sticks to go build this fire for her and her son's last meal together. And Elijah meets her at that point and asks her to give him the last of her food, and give her a piece, or give him a piece of that. And she did with nothing but a promise that God would provide. We talked about provision and promise, and we saw that God provides in miraculous means. We talked a little bit about that, about how sometimes we underplay the miraculous side, the supernatural side of our supernatural God. Um, but we also talked about how God provides through the church. And I challenged you guys last week to think about what that means in your life. You know, how well are you at receiving help from the church? How often do you humble yourself like Elijah did in receiving that help? But also, how often are you doing better at being that provision? How, how much do you strive to have that in your life? How can you better bring yourself to a place of provision as the church? And I pray that that stuck with you. I pray that that'll continue to challenge you. I want you guys thinking through those things, but um, tonight, I don't want to just think about provision as the church. I want to talk about God's glory on display. And I want us to spend a minute getting familiar with the passage that we're, we're about to get in. So um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just like take a second, clear your mind. If you need to, just close your eyes and just think about the, the place I'm putting you in right now as, as I say this. Take a second. And I want you to put yourself in the widow's place. You've got almost no food left. You've got just enough for one last meal. So you go out and you grab some sticks because you're going to light this fire. You're going to cook this bread. You're going to eat the last meal that you'll have on earth. And then you're going to pass away with you and your family. That's your plan. That's, that's what you're expecting you're at the end of your rope. You've got no way of providing for yourself, no other way to possibly think about how to live, and you have come to a place that you are just ready to die, and you are okay with that. And then a man comes along and offers you and your son a promise of life, a promise of provision. And I want you to imagine the joy and the happiness that you would have felt in that. Imagine the joy and happiness the widow felt knowing that her son and her would get to live another day, that there was provision to be had, and imagine the trust that, that would grow in God. Imagine the satisfaction in God that came with that, knowing that he was going to provide, that not only her, but her son would get to live when all had seemed lost just moments ago. So get to that spot. Now let's read the next passage. First Kings 17, verse, chapter 17, verse 17. Right after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. 
And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged. Then he stretched himself um, and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. All right, so you're in this place of the widow, right? God does this miracle to provide for your family, and then all of a sudden, the promise of God that would sustain you and your family, it turns south. And after getting this awesome promise that you guys were going to live and be provided for, your son dies from an illness. I think you guys can start imagining what you would feel, right? Like that's, I, I want us to take the people in Scripture and make them real. Like they were actually people that existed. This is a truthful story. This woman existed in history. What did she feel in that moment as this awesome provision happened and then all of a sudden her son gets sick and then he dies? My guess is that we would feel exactly what the woman felt here, right? We would feel empty. We would feel questioning. We would feel angry. I mean, you have a God that sustains and provides and then all of a sudden allows your son to get sick and die. Like, how does a mind process that? And I think what this woman says is what I would say is a super common response. Especially, especially in the Old Testament, we see a lot. But she comes to the conclusion that she's being punished. And that Elijah being there has somehow like brought her sin to light to God. And now that God sees her sin, she has to pay for it with the life of her son. Like look back at verse 18. It says, And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance. So you've, you've come to me to have God remember my sin and to cause the death of my son. Like, meaning, Elijah, what did I do to you that you would come into my house, that you would reveal my sin to God, and you would make him angry enough to punish me by killing my son? Why would you do that? So let me, let me start with this. The, the Lord does punish sin. Like, even in the life of a Christian, the Lord does punish sin. Like, he does discipline us. And sin still has its consequences upon our life. Like, a loving father does discipline his children. Hebrews 12 says, like, it is for discipline that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons. And for what son is there whom a father doesn't discipline? Like, God does have discipline in our lives. So what, what the woman is saying that God disciplines, like, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to, to have a truth that God does discipline because of sin. That, that's a factual statement. But the woman here has a fundamental misunderstanding of God. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's an understanding that, that we also tend to fall into, or we like to pretend exists. It's, it's something that we sometimes wish existed. And, and that's the idea that at some point her sin was hidden from God. Like, how many of you would like that to be true? 
that God wouldn't see the sins that you commit, that you could possibly hide it from him, that you could go long enough without him noticing your sin that you would never have to deal with the consequences. But that's her fundamental misunderstanding, is that God wouldn't know it. I mean, she literally thought that Elijah brought a magnifying glass with him, and because of that magnifying glass, that's the reason God knew about her sin, or that's the reason God became angry about her sin, as if God didn't already know, as if God isn't all-knowing. And before we get any further, this is the point I want to make about God's glory. We've got three points about how God is glorified, and, th- and this is the point I want to make. God is glorified because he can withstand your questions, which I know is setting up sort of weird. I'll get into it in just a sec, but God is glorified because he can withstand your questions. So she's got this like fundamental misunderstanding of sin, and because of that, she begins to ask questions, right? And she asks like a weird question, but she's expressing how she feels. But what we've seen in this woman's life, and this is why I get to this point that God is glorified because he can withstand your questions. What we see in this woman's life is that the glory of God isn't diminished by the things you misunderstand. Like God can handle the questions that you have, and God can handle the emotions you express, and God, his glory is not diminished when you misunderstand something about him. Now, like, if you're, if you're preaching to God about somebody else and you're communicating the truth of God, that, that's like a completely different thing, right? To properly handle the truth of God and communicate it to people, like, that's, a, that's something that can bring dishonor to God if you're not doing it appropriately, right? Like, that's something that if you do it appropriately, can bring glory to God. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is God's glory in itself cannot be added to or diminished by how we understand him. Because he is. He is not impacted by our understanding of him. He is his own being. He is himself. And the reason I want to bring this up, and the reason why it's in this passage for us tonight, is I want to encourage you in something that oftentimes we we give into. And, And I want to say, like, don't let your anxiety and making sure that you think the right things about God get in the way of you expressing your heart and your emotions to God. So I, like, I'm a, I got a couple parenting examples for you tonight, right? So I see this in my kids a, a lot, this whole idea. Like, in case you guys didn't know, Brittany and I were pretty strict parents, right? Like, we, we have things that we want our kids to do. Like, we make sure our kids are super polite, and we make sure that they behave, and we really make sure they treat others well, and we want them treating each other well. Um, and, and most of the time, like, I think that's a great thing. Like, I love the fact that my kids are so polite. I love the fact that they desire to be polite and that they treat others well and they treat them with respect. Um, but every so often, like, that whole principle comes back to bite me as a parent. Because, like, sometimes something will happen where one of my kids gets, like, their feelings hurt or they get worried about something or they might even get, like, physically hurt because they we're doing something. And sometimes, like, my kids are so concerned with making sure that they tell me something in the right way, or they're so concerned with making sure that they're not impolite, or they're so concerned with using the correct words, that they just choose not to say anything to me at all. 
Like, do you guys understand what I'm saying? Like, my son is so afraid that he doesn't know how to express it the right way that he just doesn't express it because he doesn't want to get in trouble because he's more worried about how he's saying it or what he's thinking about it rather than actually just coming to me with the problem that he has in the first place. And, and what I want to say is there is a reality in which we do that with God. I mean, we want to have a right understanding of God, and that's amazing. That, I mean, that's why we open the Word, and that's why we learn about Him, and that's why we like, get in the Word together like this, because we want a really great understanding of God. And that is super crucial. But oftentimes in our relationship with Him, we can let a right understanding of God and making sure we're being politically correct with Him and making sure we're making, like, hitting every theological point that we also don't just let ourselves come to Him and express to Him when we need Him and express to Him a relationship with Him despite our misunderstandings. Much like the woman here. You know, she, she had this clear thought that her sins were hidden from God. As if God didn't see them, but where we can learn from this woman is, you know, despite like her having these thoughts about God and, and being angry with him actually for bringing these things up, like despite her theological inaccuracy, she still came forward in expression to him. And, and we too often like make God this parent that only, only concerns himself with making sure we think the right thing, that we stop treating him like our father in the first place. A lot like my kids do to me. So the, the encouragement here is that God's glory isn't diminished by your understanding, right? Like oftentimes God is glorified despite our understanding of him. And, and much like here, God raises the widow's son despite her misunderstanding of his knowledge. And if you're in the same boat as me, you need to be encouraged in that. You need to be encouraged to spend a bit more time talking to God and not just learning about God. I want to encourage you to be in a relationship with him, not just have a politically correct view of him, not just listen to the things of this world, whether they're political or theological, that allow you to think the best of him, but I want you to be in a relationship with him that changes your life. All right, so we've got this widow in verses 17 and 18. Um, She's in anguish, right? She's in anguish over the fact that God promised provision and all of a sudden there's death. And so she's upset and she like tells this to Elijah. And let's see Elijah's response to it. Verse 19, Elijah says to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where Elijah lodged and laid him on his bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned? By killing her son. So Elijah takes the boy, carries him up to the room that Elijah has been staying in, and lays the boy on the bed. But then he asks, like, this super interesting question, right? Like, if this isn't a statement Elijah makes, this is a question that he's asking of God. Like, Lord, have you saved this boy from starvation just to kill him with disease? Have you brought tragedy on the widow I'm staying with by, by killing her son? Lord, have you done this? God, did you do this? Like, that is a, sort of a weird question to ask, right? But it's like another instance of how God's glory can withstand our questions. Elijah's like, he's this awesome man of faith. 
And we're about to see it in action. We're going to continue to see in action in the weeks to come. And we've already seen it, right? With, with things Elijah can do and say because he walks in faith with God. But he asks a question that doesn't seem very faith-filled, right? Like, he asks a question that seems sort of doubtful. And I think many of us would be like, like, that's doubt. Like, that's bad. Like, it's bad to doubt God. And, like, God doesn't reward that. And, and God certainly won't work through somebody that's just constantly doubting him. And, and there's verses even that say, like, as you pray, like, don't doubt. Because you'll just go back and forth, toss through the waves. It says that in James. Like, so we naturally are going to steer away from this idea of, like, oh, don't you dear, dare have any kind of thought like that. Right? But clearly Elijah has faith. I mean, we're about to see it, but, but yet he asks questions. Clearly he trusts God, yet he's willing to ask the things that come to his mind. Like, doesn't that show the relationship he had with him? He has this question, and so he just asks God. He's not worried about the answer he's going to get. He knows God can handle those questions. And so because he's in a relationship with God, he asks God those questions. God, did you do this? Why? Why, why would you do this? You know, being able to express that to God, it's just the final point, guys, that drives home this idea of making sure you're in a relationship with God as well, because he can handle your questions. So Elijah has some uncertainty about God's decision or God's actions here, but he doesn't lack certainty of what God can do. Like, do you see that difference? Like, he, he has a, a question about God's action, but he doesn't question God's ability. Clearly, Elijah lacks a, a little bit of understanding here, but he's not going to let that lack of understanding get in the way of the glory that God deserves in this. So let, let's see exactly what he does next. Let's go over it again. Uh, verse 21 and 22. It says, Then he, Elijah, stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. So, we don't know, like, why or what exactly it means that Elijah stretched himself three times over the boy. And we don't know, like, did it look like he was actually, like, laying his body on top of the kid? Was he just, like, in a moment of prayer, like, stretching his hands out over the kid? Like, there's no actual explanation, and there's no, like, known Jewish ritual to actually have any idea what was actually happening. But the text doesn't actually concern itself with answering that, right? The text isn't concerned with telling you what it looked like that Elijah did it. It just wants you to know that Elijah did that action because the point of the part of this passage is that God wasn't hindered by Elijah's questions, but he was moved by Elijah's faith. I'll say that again, like, God wasn't hindered by Elijah's questions, but he was moved by Elijah's faith. The text is super specific here. Like the Hebrew gets really specific in this part of the passage and says, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. This sentence makes Elijah the subject. It makes Elijah the, the one that is causing the action in the sentence. It's something that happens very specifically in the Hebrew language. And it is very clear to note that Elijah, Elijah is the cause of what is going on. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. 
And our second point to take away is God is glorified because he listens to prayers. Like God is given glory because of the fact that he listens to, that he chooses to listen to our prayers. So as I study, I, I like to read a lot of commentaries after I've done sort of the hard work, right? Like, I open up the text, I spend a lot of time in the text, then I open up, like, the Hebrew or Greek as much as I can and understand that. And then, like, as I feel like I've synthesized it, I check it with commentaries, histories of the church to see what has the church traditionally believed in this and what has been taught and what do the Hebrew people understand of this passage. And I saw this, this just comment in the commentary, and I thought it was just good. I just want to read it to you. I, I don't get to read commentaries to you guys very often. But it's talking about Elijah's method, right? Where he's like stretching over the boy and, and he does it three times and it's drawing connections. But then it says, regardless of the method used, regardless of the method Elijah used to raise the boy, the important fact is that God raises the boy from the dead. The child revives because Yahweh heard Elijah. It's not because the power of Elijah it's not because of the power of anything but God, but yet God chose to listen to Elijah. God listens to prayers. He listens to what we have to say. Like God's not just this like super distant being that knows what we are going to say. He's a being that listens to what we have to say. I told you I had a, a couple parenting examples, right? I don't normally give parenting examples, but it's like it's just on my heart this week, especially with my son, and just like he's starting to talk a lot, right? And he's starting to get to the point where like I feel like he's his own little human now, right? And um, I thought about this as I, I picked him up this week. I pick him up a few times from school, and like his teacher walks him out, and he's like getting in the car, and his teacher will like tell me all the things he did that day, right? And I think it's for accuracy, so I know like what he's telling me lines up with what she said. So she tells me all the things that he did, and then we get in the car, and we drive, and we go get lunch, and uh, he tells me all the things that he did, even though I already know them. Right? I already know what he did that day. I know he cut papers in the shape of hearts, and I know that he got to play outside on the playground today. And I know these things because I've been told them, but I let him tell me these things anyways. And why do I let him tell me these things? Well, one... It's for his own good, right? Like, it grows him in being able to communicate and understand things and synthesize things, and it, it grows him in being able to care about the things that he did and to know that I care about the things that he did. It grows him in being able to express himself and to be able to think of different ways of understanding what he's done. And two, like selfishly, like it stirs my affections for him. Right? It makes me proud of him. It makes me desire to know what's going on more with him. It, honestly, just because I'm his father, I just love to hear it. Right? I love to hear his voice telling me the things he did because it just makes me happy knowing that he's enjoying life and he's enjoying what we've been able to provide for him. Right? Like The idea that I managed to bring him to school and we're paying for the school for him to go to and then he's enjoying it and he's growing from it, it's beneficial for me to hear him talk about it even. I get to see his excitement. And it's because I'm his father, right? It's because I love him. And I love hearing him enjoy the process. And like I said earlier, we need to remember God is our father as well. Like he's the ultimate father. And he's a loving father. Like he desires 
to hear things from us. He doesn't have to, right? In no way does it add to him in the sense of like, he doesn't grow his knowledge, he doesn't grow and mature him in any way, but yet he desires to hear from us because for some reason he has chosen that we would be people that stir his affection. For some reason he has chosen to want to be in a relationship with us and to hear from us stirs his affections and his actions towards us. He doesn't just hear them, but he actually listens to them. And I, I'm just going to throw a few scriptures out, right? You can ask me later, I'll give you all the references. But James, it says that uh, we have not because we ask not, implying that God listens to the things that we ask. First Peter chapter 3 says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Like God pays attention to the righteous. 1 John 5 says, like, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Like, God hears us in what we ask. And, like, those are just a couple verses. Like, there's so many verses I could use to point to the fact that God listens to our prayers and that he's glorified in doing so. But the fact that God is in enough of a relationship with people to hear and answer his prayer shows his glory all the more. That's what I'm getting to, right? Like, do you see how good and glorious he is that he would be the type of God to do that in the first place. And like just that alone shows God's glory. That he's different than any other God. That he doesn't require some repeated action in order to be listened to. He doesn't require just obedience. He listens to those he's in relationship with. So God, God is glorified because he can handle the questions we throw at him. He's glorified because he listens to the prayer of the faithful. And our last point, like God is glorified because death is not an enemy for him. God is glorified because death is not his enemy. I mean, you guys see it at the end of the passage. The whole point of this passage, right, is that God raised this son from the dead. That Elijah prayed to the Lord, that the Lord listened to Elijah, and the Lord's power is what caused the boy to be raised from the dead. God caused the boy to die because nothing happens outside of God's will. And God caused the boy to live because nothing happens outside of God's will. And I was reminded this week, like Calvin and I, we've been planning Good Friday together, right? Like Good Friday is this awesome time. It's like a time we come together as a church and we mourn. We lament. It's one of the few times that we don't come with smiles on our faces all the time because we want to have a better understanding of what it means that Jesus actually died for us. We want to be, have an actual realistic response to Jesus himself dying on the cross for us. And so we'd like try to hit it from all these different angles, right? Like, well, what does it mean that he was the promised king? And what does that look like if he died for us? And, and at some point, though, you always come back to Adam and Eve come back to the first sin, the original sin. And I was reminded, as Calvin and I are watching some of these videos, we watched one video specifically, that like after Adam and Eve commit the first sin, God is the one who declares there will be death. God punishes sin, right? And God is the one that instituted death as the punishment. Death is not God's enemy. Like, we view it as our enemy because it is, right? Death is our enemy. It's, it's our punishment. 
But to God, it is not an enemy. It is, it is merely just a tool for discipline. It is merely just a consequence for the discipline of our sin. And we like to think of good versus evil, right? We like to think of like this battle God is facing and, and even the whole concept of Christ conquering death, right? We give it more power because, because Christ conquered something that's unconquerable. And that's true, right? For us, it is unconquerable. But God does not have the enemy of death. And I want us to be reminded of that. When we think about death in our life, when we think, I mean, that's a huge thing for us, right? Like, death is painful. Whether, like, it's thinking about the, the death of a loved one and how traumatic that can be, that they're just gone all of a sudden, and what they leave behind, like, it's, it's a huge thing. But death is so big for us that they have entire philosophies dedicated to man realizing just how awful death is. Have you guys ever heard of existentialism? Existentialism is this entire philosophy that was born out of the fact that one day a man realized he was going to die and he didn't like it. He felt mortal and he felt weak and he felt like he could do nothing. And the whole philosophy of existentialism is this response to not being able to handle death. Death is a big deal for us. And y'all have had it sometimes, right? Whether you've lost somebody and then you've started thinking like, What's going to happen when I die? Where am I going to be? Who's going to be around me? Will I know it's going to happen? Will, will I know it's happening? Or will it be something that catches me off guard? Like, we've had those thoughts, and you guys will continue to have those thoughts as you get older. And there's this weird point where you get old enough, you just accept it either way, and then you start joking. I don't know. Um, it's crazy, but I think I don't need to push anymore. You guys know death is a big deal for us, right? And that's not even an enemy for God. That's something he brings about, and that's something he gets rid of, and that's something he overcomes. And like God receives all the glory for that, right? Because he stands apart from death. And so I want us to see those things, that God is glorified in the life of Elijah, even when we see him do things that, um, even when we see him do things that maybe we've heard about before. And, and the last point I want to drive home is God is glorified even more in this because of how much this right here shows us what he's going to do with Christ. I told you, the life of Elijah is like this beautiful example of Christ. And the connections you could draw, I mean, you could spend all day in this passage just drawing the connections between Elijah and Christ over and over. Like, sort of cool. Elijah leans over the boy for three times of prayer, right? Three times of prayer. He's praying over this kid, and yet Christ was dead for three days. We see the scripture that the Lord is the one who raised him from the dead, and the scripture that the Lord is the one that raised Christ from the dead. We see this promise of provision given to the widow, and all of a sudden death that was not expected give way to life. Just like the people of Israel were expecting this awesome king that would come and conquer Rome, and it would be the king that was promised by God and be the Messiah, and this provision in their life, and all of a sudden he was dead. And we can keep on drawing them, but this is just like a hint of God's glory. And next week, next week's the best story. Baal versus God, 
Elijah and the prophets, mountains of fire. Like, this is where it all gets turned on, and we're going to start seeing all these connections. There's a lot of connections that I haven't even brought up yet that we're going to start seeing into the backstory of Baal versus God and all this cool stuff. So, all right, that's God's glory in this, right? It's all an encouragement. If I were to wrap up this message, be in relationship with God. Be in relationship with him. Don't forget that you are in relationship with a God. And it's not just about filling your head with right knowledge. It's about being in a relationship with a righteous God. 